0: Section five of My Discovery of England by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Oxford as I See It. Part One. My private station being that of a university professor, I was naturally deeply interested in the system of education in England. I was therefore led to make a special visit to Oxford, and to submit the place to a searching scrutiny arriving one afternoon at four o'clock i stayed at the mitre hotel and did not leave until eleven o'clock next morning the whole of this time except for one hour spent in addressing the undergraduates was devoted to a close and eager study of the great university when i add to this that i had already visited oxford in nineteen o seven and spent a sunday at all souls with colonel l s Amory it will be seen at once that my views on Oxford are based upon observations extending over fourteen years. At any rate, I can at least claim that my acquaintance with the British University is just as good a basis for reflection and judgment as that of the numerous English critics who come to our side of the water." I have known a famous English author to arrive at Harvard University in the morning, have lunch with President Lowell, and then write a whole chapter on the excellence of higher education in America. I have known another one come to Harvard, have lunch with President Lowell, and do an entire book on the decline of serious study in America. Or take the case of my own university, I remember Mr. Rudyard Kipling coming to McGill and saying in his address to the undergraduates at two thirty p.m., You have here a great institution. But how could he have gathered this information? As far as I know, he spent the entire morning with Sir Andrew MacPhail in his house beside the campus, smoking cigarettes. When I add that he distinctly refused to visit the Paleontologic Museum, that he saw nothing of our new hydraulic apparatus or of our classes in domestic science, his judgment that we had here a great institution seems a little bit superficial. I can only put beside it, to redeem it in some measure, the hasty and ill-formed judgment expressed by Lord Milner, McGill is a noble university, and the rash and indiscreet expression of the Prince of Wales, when we gave him an L.L.D. degree, McGill has a glorious future. To my mind these unthinking judgments about our great college do harm, and I am determined therefore that anything that I said about Oxford should be the result of the actual observation and real study based upon a bona fide residence in the Mitre Hotel. On the strength of this basis of experience I am prepared to make the following positive and emphatic statements. Oxford is a noble university, it has a great past, it is at present the greatest university in the world, and it is quite possible that it has a great future. Oxford trains scholars of the real type better than any other place in the world. Its methods are antiquated, it despises science, its lectures are rotten, it has professors who never teach and students who never learn, it has no order, no arrangement, no system, its curriculum is unintelligible. It has no president, it has no state legislature to tell it how to teach, and yet it gets there. Whether we like it or not, Oxford gives something to its students, a life and a mode of thought, which in America as yet we can emulate but not equal. If anybody doubts this, let him go and take a room at the Mitre Hotel ten and six for a wainscoted bedroom period of charles the first and study the place for himself these singular results achieved at oxford are all the more surprising when one considers the distressing conditions under which the students work the lack of an adequate building fund compels them to go on working in the same old buildings which they have had for centuries the buildings at Brasenose College have not been renewed since the year 1525. In New College and Magdalen, the students are still housed in the old buildings erected in the sixteenth century. At Christchurch, I was shown a kitchen which had been built at the expense of Cardinal Woolsey in 1527. Incredible though it may seem, they have no other place to cook in than this, and are compelled to use it to-day." On the day when I saw this kitchen, four cooks were busy roasting an ox whole for the student's lunch. This, at least, is what I presumed they were doing from the size of the fireplace used, but it may not have been an ox. Perhaps it was a cow. On a huge table, twelve feet by six, and made of slabs of wood five inches thick, two other cooks were rolling out a game pie. I estimated it as measuring three feet across. In this rude way, unchanged since the time of Henry the Eighth, the unhappy Oxford students are fed. I could not help contrasting it with the cosy little boarding houses on Cottage Grove Avenue where I used to eat when I was a student at Chicago, or the charming little basement dining rooms of the students' boarding houses in Toronto. But then, of course, Henry the Eighth never lived in Toronto the same lack of a building fund necessitates the oxford students living in the identical old boarding-houses they had in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries technically they are called quadrangles closes and rooms but i am so broken into the usage of my student days that i can't help calling them boarding-houses in many of these the old stairway has been worn down by the feet of ten generations of students the windows have little latticed panes there are old names carved here and there upon the stone, and a thick growth of ivy covers the walls. The boarding-house at St. John's College dates from 1509, the one at Christ Church from the same period. A few hundred thousand pounds would suffice to replace these old buildings with neat steel and brick structures, like the Normal School at Schenectady, New York, or the Peel Street High School at Montreal. But nothing is done— A movement was indeed attempted last autumn towards removing the ivy from the walls, but the result was unsatisfactory, and they are putting it back. Any one could have told them beforehand that the mere removal of the ivy would not brighten Oxford up, unless at the same time one cleared the stones of the old inscriptions, put in steel fire escapes, and in fact brought the boarding-houses up to date. But Henry VIII being dead, nothing was done yet in spite of its dilapidated buildings and its lack of fire-escapes, ventilation, sanitation, and up-to-date kitchen facilities, I persist in my assertion that I believe that Oxford, in its way, is the greatest university in the world. I am aware that this is an extreme statement, and needs explanation. Oxford is much smaller in numbers, for example, than the State University of Minnesota, and is much poorer. It has, or had till yesterday, fewer students than the University of Toronto. To mention Oxford beside the twenty six thousand students of Columbia University sounds ridiculous. In point of money, the thirty nine million dollar endowment of the University of Chicago, and the thirty five million dollar one of Columbia, and the forty three million dollar of Harvard seem to leave Oxford nowhere yet the peculiar thing is that it is not nowhere. By some queer process of its own it seems to get there every time. It was therefore of the very greatest interest to me, as a profound scholar, to try to investigate just how this peculiar excellence of Oxford arises. It can hardly be due to anything in the curriculum or program of studies, Indeed, to anyone accustomed to the best models of a university curriculum, as it flourishes in the United States and Canada, the programme of studies is frankly quite laughable. There is less applied science in the place than would be found with us in a theological college. Hardly a single professor at Oxford would recognise a dynamo if he met it in broad daylight." The Oxford student learns nothing of chemistry, physics, heat, plumbing, electric wiring, gas fitting, or the use of a blowtorch. Any American college student can run a motor car, take a gasoline engine to pieces, fix a washer on a kitchen tap, mend a broken electric bell, and give an expert opinion on what has gone wrong with the furnace it is these things indeed which stamp him as a college man and occasion a very pardonable pride in the minds of his parents but in all these things the oxford student is the merest amateur this is bad enough but after all one might say this is only the mechanical side of education true but one searches in vain in the oxford curriculum for any adequate recognition of the higher and more cultured studies strange though it seems to us on this side of the atlantic there are no courses at oxford in housekeeping or in salesmanship or in advertising or in comparative religion or on the influence of the press there are no lectures whatever on human behaviour on altruism on egotism or on the play of wild animals apparently the oxford student does not learn these things this cuts him off from a great deal of the larger culture of our side of the Atlantic. "'What are you studying this year?' I once asked a fourth-year student at one of our great colleges. "'I am electing salesmanship and religion,' he answered. Here was a young man whose training was destined inevitably to turn him into a moral business man, either that or nothing. At Oxford salesmanship is not taught— and religion takes the feeble form of the New Testament. The more one looks at these things, the more amazing it becomes that Oxford can produce any results at all. The effect of the comparison is heightened by the peculiar position occupied at Oxford by the professors' lectures. In the Colleges of Canada and the United States, the lectures are supposed to be a really necessary and useful part of the students' training. Again and again I have heard the graduates of my own college assert that they had got as much, or nearly as much, out of the lectures at college as out of athletics or the Greek Letter Society or the banjo and mandolin club. In short, with us the lectures form a real part of the college life. At Oxford it is not so. The lectures, I understand, are given and may even be taken but they are quite worthless, and are not supposed to have anything much to do with the development of the student's mind. The lectures here, said a Canadian student to me, are punk. I appealed to another student to know if this was so. I don't know whether I'd call them exactly punk, he answered, but they're certainly rotten. Other judgments were that the lectures were of no importance, that nobody took them, that they don't matter, that you can take them if you like, that they do you no harm. It appears further that the professors themselves are not keen on their lectures. If the lectures are called for, they give them. If not, the professor's feelings are not hurt. He merely waits and rests his brain until in some later year the students call for his lectures. There are men at Oxford who have rested their brains this way for over thirty years. The accumulated brain power thus dammed up is said to be colossal. I understand that the key to this mystery is found in the operations of the person called the tutor. It is from him, or rather with him, that the students learn all that they know. One and all are agreed on that. Yet it is a little odd to know just how he does it. We go over to his rooms, said one student, and he just lights a pipe and talks to us. We sit round with him, said another, and he simply smokes and goes over our exercises with us. From this and other evidence, I gather that what an Oxford tutor does is to get a little group of students together and smoke at them. Men who have been systematically smoked at for four years turn into ripe scholars if anybody doubts this let him go to oxford and he can see the thing actually in operation a well-smoked man speaks and writes english with a grace that can be acquired in no other way in what is said above i seem to have been directing criticism against the oxford professors as such but i have no intention of doing so for the oxford professor and his whole manner of being i have nothing but a profound respect There is indeed the greatest difference between the modern up-to-date American idea of a professor and the English type. But even with us in older days, in the bygone time when such people as Henry Wadsworth Longfellow were professors, one found the English idea. A professor was supposed to be a venerable kind of person, with snow-white whiskers reaching to his stomach. He was expected to moon around the campus, oblivious of the world around him. If you nodded to him, he failed to see you. Of money he knew nothing, of business far less. He was, as his trustees were proud to say of him, a child. On the other hand, he contained within him a reservoir of learning of such depth as to be practically bottomless. None of this learning was supposed to be of any material or commercial benefit to anybody." its use was in saving the soul and enlarging the mind. At the head of such a group of professors was one whose beard was even whiter and longer, whose absence of mind was even still greater, and whose knowledge of money, business, and practical affairs was below zero, him they made the president. All this has changed in America. A university professor is now a busy, hustling person, Approximating as closely to a businessman as he can do it. It is on the businessman that he models himself. He has a little place that he calls his office with a typewriter machine and a stenographer. Here he sits and dictates letters, beginning after the best business models. In re, yours of the eighth alt, would say, etc., etc. He writes these letters to students, to his fellow professors, to the President, indeed to any people who will let him write to them. The number of letters that he writes each month is duly counted and set to his credit. If he writes enough, he will get a reputation as an executive, and big things may happen to him. He may even be asked to step out of the college and take a post as an executive in a soap company or an advertising firm. The man, in short, is a hustler, an advertiser, whose highest aim is to be a live-wire. If he is not, he will presently be dismissed, or, to use the business term, be let go, by a board of trustees who are themselves hustlers and live-wires. As to the professor's soul, he no longer needs to think of it, as it has been handed over, along with all the others, to a board of censors the american professor deals with his students according to his lights it is his business to chase them along over a prescribed ground at a prescribed pace like a flock of sheep they all go humping together over the hurdles with the professor chasing them with a set of tests and recitations marks and attendances the whole apparatus obviously copied from the time clock of the businessman's factory THIS PROCESS IS WHAT IS CALLED SHOWING RESULTS. THE PACE-SET IS NECESSARILY THAT OF THE SLOWEST, AND THUS RESULTS IN WHAT I HAVE HEARD MR. EDWARD BEATTY DESCRIBE AS THE CONVOY SYSTEM OF EDUCATION. IN MY OWN OPINION, REACHED AFTER 52 YEARS OF PROFOUND REFLECTION, THIS SYSTEM CONTAINS IN ITSELF THE SEEDS OF DESTRUCTION. IT PUTS A PREMIUM ON dullness AND A PENALTY ON GENIUS it circumscribes that latitude of mind which is the real spirit of learning. If we persist in it, we shall presently find that true learning will fly away from our universities, and will take rest wherever some individual and inquiring mind can mark out its path for itself. Now the principal reason why I am led to admire Oxford is that the place is little touched as yet by the measuring of results and by this passion for visible and provable efficiency the whole system at oxford is such as to put a premium on genius and to let mediocrity and dullness go their way on the dull student at oxford after a proper lapse of time confers a degree which means nothing more than that he lived and breathed at oxford and kept out of jail this for many students is as much as society can expect but for the gifted students oxford offers great opportunities there is no question of his hanging back till the last sheep has jumped over the fence he need wait for no one he may move forward as fast as he likes following the bent of his genius if he has in him any ability beyond that of the common herd his tutor interested in his studies will smoke at him until he kindles him into a flame for the tutor's soul is not harassed by hurting dull students, with dismissal hanging by a thread over his head in the classroom. The American professor has no time to be interested in a clever student. He has time to be interested in his deportment, his letter-writing, his executive work, and his organizing ability and his hope of promotion to a soap factory. But with that his mind is exhausted." the student of genius merely means to him a student who gives no trouble who passes all his tests and is present at all his recitations such a student also if he can be trained to be a hustler and an advertiser will undoubtedly make good but beyond that the professor does not think of him the everlasting principle of equality has inserted itself in a place where it has no right to be and where inequality is the breath of life. American or Canadian college trustees would be horrified at the notion of professors who apparently do no work, give few or no lectures, and draw their pay merely for existing. Yet these are really the only kind of professors worth having. I mean, men who can be trusted with a vague general mission in life, with a salary guaranteed at least till their death, and a sphere of duties entrusted solely to their own consciences and the promptings of their own desires. Such men are rare, but a single one of them, when found, is worth ten executives and a dozen organizers. The excellence of Oxford, then, as I see it, lies in the peculiar vagueness of the organization of its work it starts from the assumption that the professor is a really learned man whose sole interest lies in his own sphere and that a student or at least the only student with whom the university cares to reckon seriously is a young man who desires to know this is an ancient medieval attitude long since buried in more up-to-date places under successive strata of compulsory education state teaching the democratization of knowledge and the substitution of the shadow for the substance and the casket for the gem no doubt in newer places the thing has got to be so higher education in america flourishes chiefly as a qualification for entrance into a money-making profession and not as a thing in itself. But in Oxford, one can still see the surviving outline of a nobler type of structure and a higher inspiration. End of section five.